This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of December 13th. It's the second week of the Professor's Tournament uh, with three days of semifinals and then a two-day final... Two-day total, total point point affair. Total point affair, and uh, this has been a really fun tournament. Yeah, yeah. So on Monday we have the contestants Katie Reed, an associate professor of musicology from Cal Ooh. State Fullerton, J.P. Allen, a professor of business and innovation from University of San Francisco, and Sam Buttry, an associate professor of operations research from Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And our Jeopardy categories are professions. 19th Century Lit, Modern Shorthand, Historic Americans, British Humor, and Fossil Words, words which were once common but now only appear in isolated phrases. That Fossil Words category was interesting. It was interesting. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. I had a hard time getting to some of these. Once we heard the responses, I was like, all right, you know, I know I know that phrase, but... Mm -hmm. But because it's a word that apparently only really only shows up in that phrase, it's not one you usually think of. Yep. So, like, uh, the 400, Sam, Sam ended up getting this one, but I, I was stumped. It meant a stake or a fence made of stakes. Going beyond it meant leaving a protected area. And that's the pale. That's what beyond the pale means. Yeah, and I had here, no idea. Yeah. Here I thought it just was talking about skin tone. Mm. And that's probably because the first time I heard that phrase, it was in, it, it's a title of a Jim Gaffigan album, mm. show, whatever yeah. it was. So I was like, ah, yes, he is pale. There's a <laughs> joke it's here. It's true. <laughs> yes. So now, now I have actually learned it, which is nice. <laughs> JP made, made some uh, attempts at British accents um, in the, in the British humor category, which was fun. I appreciate a little uh, hamming it up. Yeah, a little bit of humor. Yeah. Ricky Gervais showed up in the British humor category and also in Learned League yes. this week. I did not get that question correct. Not a fan of the of the British office? Um, You know, I never really... Like, I think I watched a little bit of one episode, but I never quite got into it. I find, like, with British shows, I struggle to get through the first couple of episodes and mm -hmm. then i'm immersed and i enjoy them yeah no i the british office was very hard to watch hmm because okay. the like the american office you know steve carell's character is obviously a doofus and does and says offensive things but there is a there are redeeming qualities about him there is a lovability Mm. And Ricky Gervais purposely made David Brent not that way. Mm. Like, he's just kind of a bad dude. Yeah. So it's it's much... It hits much harder on the cringe factor. Oh, uh, yeah. And doesn't give you the respite of, like, oh, there's something heartwarming or something likable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah. 
well, maybe maybe I won't make it make another attempt at that one. Then yeah, I mean, people can argue with me, but I, I don't think it, yeah, I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Last week we were complaining about the Jeopardy writers inventing texting abbreviations, and like here we are with modern shorthand in the eight hundred dollar level. You might post your CV on this website, LI for short. Nobody calls it LI. Nobody calls it because it doesn't save any time. LinkedIn is two syllables. Mm-hmm. Like why why would you call it that? Yeah, nobody calls nobody, it that. Nobody does that. <laughs> uh. Yep. All right, let's move on from that. Daily Double number one is in the professions category. It's at the $600 level. JP finds it at pick number six. He's at $1,800. Sam's at zero. Katie's at $1,200. And he wagers everything as a true Daily Double. Gets the clue, Walter Badgett, a Victorian who wrote on central banking, had this profession, and edited the magazine of the same name. And he gets that correct with what is an economist. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, JP is at 6,200, Sam is at 6,600, and Katie is at 4,600. We have the double Jeopardy round categories, Latin American geography, chemistry, sidekicks, gems and jewels, let there be enlightenment, and say something silly, professor. We started in that say something silly professor category, which was all just kind of silly sounding words like cattywampus. And then we jumped from there to the Latin American geography category and immediately had a question about Lake Titicaca, which (laughs) could just as well be in the say something silly professor category, because, you know, I think to English speakers, that sounds silly. Why? Oh, gosh, Kyle, I don't know. Oh, I don't either. I definitely don't work with teenagers. Maybe somebody can explain to us. Yeah. (laughs) Twitter, help us out. (laughs) Please fill our timelines with titty caca. Okay. Uh, Moving on to something else. I'm not convinced that Maya Bialik has seen the movie Shrek. Because she didn't do a Scottish what? accent when like, she read she the line? She doesn't need to do a Scottish accent. Just something about the delivery felt to me like she just didn't know these characters at all. Mm. I don't it's know. I could be wrong. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Actually, you know what? We need to find this out. Let's blow up her spot. Find out if she's... <laughs> we need to know if she's seen Shrek. She... Have you seen Shrek? <laughs> Are you Shrek aware, Mayim? Mm-hmm. The people need to know. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the Latin American geography category at the $2,000 level. And JP finds it at the fifth pick right after getting that Lake Titicaca question. He has 8,200 at this point to Sam's 7,400 and Katie's 5,800. He wagers 5,400. I'm not quite sure how he came up with that specific number, but... You know, that's fine. Um, And he gets the question, the 80-mile-wide Mona Passage separates the Dominican Republic from this island. He guesses what is Cuba, but the correct response here is Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And Daily Double number three is pick number nine. It's in the Enlightenment category at the $1,200 level. JP finds this one as well. Found all three. Mm Mm-hmm. He's at 5,200, Sam's at 7,400, Katie's at 5,800, and he wagers 3,000. 
gets the clue, this concept of an actual or implicit agreement between rulers and the ruled gave a 1762 Rousseau work its title. And he gets that correct with what is the social contract. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Sam is in the lead with 19,000, JP is at 13,400, Katie's at 9,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Kings and Queens. And the clue, due to legislative action of 1707, she was officially the last monarch of independent Scotland. Katie wrote down, who is Mary? And then in parentheses, Queen of Scots. That is not correct. She's wagered everything, so she drops to zero. JP also tried who is Mary, Queen of Scots. No parentheses for him, though. Um, and he's also wagered everything, so he also drops to zero. I don't think that he should have wagered so much. No. Yeah. Agreed. It was a tough spot, though, because, like, do you want to wager enough to get ahead? Like, to cover Katie? Or do yeah. you want to go against Sam's cover bet? Mm -hmm. But I think all of it was not the right choice. Yeah. And Sam has the correct response, who is Queen Anne, and he's wagered 7401. That's a, a cover bet. No, wait, it's not quite a cover bet, right? Brings him up to 26,401. Yeah, so his math, it seems, was a bit off. It should have been 801. Yep. So yeah, if JP had gotten this one correct, he would have won, but Sam's arithmetic error does not matter here because he was the only one to get it correct. So uh, he will be a finalist and we'll, we'll see him back for the finals on Thursday. That's right. But on Tuesday, we have the next semifinal game with the contestants Hester Blum, an English professor from Penn State University in University Park, Pennsylvania. Marty Knipe, an elementary science education professor from Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. I like Flagstaff. It's a nice mm. place. And Elisa Hovey, a botany professor from Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Alliterockers, succulents, U.S. counties, an instructor, a lecturer, and an adjunct. Adjunct. Mm -hmm. It was cool to, uh, to have a succulence category thrown in when we have a botany professor, but actually Elisa only got a couple of them. She didn't, she didn't mm -hmm. run the category. Yeah. Marty got a couple of them. Hester got in on one. So those were, those were pretty evenly split. Although Elisa did get the, the thousand dollar level, which I think was the, the, was the one that I, I didn't have a clue on. Oh um, yeah. Mm. Seemed to me like obviously the artist belying their name. These succulents often used as ground cover are native to Africa uh, there was a picture there, and Elisa knew those were ice plants, which I had not heard of. Mm -hmm. In the an instructor category, there was a triple stumper at the $1,000 level. A piece on sight reading strategies was 2013's article of the year in the journal AMT, American This. Uh, Marty guessed what is music theory. Uh, that's incorrect. And then Hester guessed what is American music theory, which they'd already given American, uh, so shoot. Yeah, missed that, I guess. It's American Music Teacher, and I don't... I have never heard it referred to as AMT. Mm. Like, I wasn't sure of this because I was like, I don't I don't know of an, a journal in my field known as AMT. Like, I know American Music Teacher, although 
there are other periodicals that I think are uh, more widely spread. But anyway, it just threw me off that like it referred to it as AMT. Maybe people do refer to it as AMT, but I I have never heard it called that. I, I somehow I think that this might be the same kind of situation. I mean, I I've never heard of the journal by an abbreviation or not, but it just feels like the same sort of situation as LI. Right. It's like and all it, those texting abbreviations. You can abbreviate it that way, yes. <laughs> but do we? That's the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Daily Double number one is in the lecturer category at the $600 level. And Hester finds it at the 18th pick. She's at 1200 at this point. Marty's in the lead with 2600 Elisa's trailing with 600 Hester wagers 800 and gets the clue. Biologist T.H. Huxley was a renowned defender of this theory and in 1893 famously lectured on it and ethics. She guesses eugenics. The correct response here is evolution. So she drops down some. Yeah, I thought eugenics was a good guess. That Those are the two that came to mind for me because I didn't know the name T.H. Huxley. And I was like, well, for the time mm-hmm. period, you know, either one seems reasonable, especially since pe- some people who were are, like you know, uh, discussing evolution were also discussing eugenics mm-hmm. in like the same breath. You know. Yeah. There are a bunch of ties between the Huxley family and eugenics. It vaguely rang a bell and I'm just Googling it now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I don't have a whole lot of information here. But like, the, I did know the Huxleys were kind of a, you know, famous intellectual family. Right. And when you Google Huxley eugenics, you, you get a bunch of stuff. So like it, it, it strikes me as an educated guess. Yeah. Is this the same family as Aldous Huxley? Yes. Yeah. Which, I mean, Brave New World is like, mm-hmm. I mean, that yeah, there, that is eugenics, right? Yeah. In a, in a way. Mm-hmm. So. so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Elise is in the lead with 3,800. Marty's at 1,800. Hester's at 1,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Let's talk revolution, women authors, 16th century arts, transportation, pop culture, Mr. or Mrs., and differs by a letter. It happened to be three female contestants, and they uh, they crushed that women women authors category. Oh yeah, they did. Yeah. Although I will also say I got four out of five. Nice. I've heard the name Zadie Smith, but it did not pop into my head, and I have no connection of titles to it. But mm-hmm. uh, I remembered Ursula Le Guin because I that's not a that is a question I did not get during my run. Mm. Uh, and I remember talking about donna tart at some point mm-hmm. with the goldfinch recently i don't remember why or with who i think it was with you but i, I don't know might have been with me <laughs> i i just remember like ah i learned this person's name not long ago and it yep. stuck with me i read the goldfinch a while back that's a big book that's a very that's that's a thick book it's a time commitment is it worth yeah. it i think so okay there were parts of it that were very bleak but I think I think it was worth it. Okay. Yeah. None of these universities are apparently in in like a bigger city because the two thousand dollar clue of transportation was a, a triple stumper. Ride green, bright green, with this bike and scooter sharing service. That's Lime, and I don't know about the other cities, but Denver has Lime scooters everywhere, mm. all over. 
and I don't really care. Like, I'm, I'm not up in arms about it. There are just a lot of them. Like, it's hard to not notice them. Hmm. Yeah. Does that happen in New York? Did they even Is there even room for things like that? Um. So New York has its own kind of separate bike sharing service called City Bike, which I think is sponsored oh. by Citibank. And I think that's the only one that's allowed in New York City proper. I had a City Bike membership when I was in New York, and it was... It was kind of helpful, although, like, I think Lime, you don't have to dock your bike, right? No, you can just leave it anywhere. Yeah, city bike's a little tricky in that, like... You gotta find a bank for it to drop it You have a limited amount of time, and then you have to find a place to dock it in order to, like, not start incurring, like, late fees. Mm -hmm. And if you're taking it somewhere popular, then, like you can end up in this situation where you like you're in the place that you're trying to go with your bike and there are you know hundreds of docks near you all of which are full Mm -hmm. and that's annoying yeah um understandable there were or maybe still are uh lime bikes in yonkers which is the you know the kind of the closest city like i'm i'm you know one mile from yonkers and eight miles from new york i don't see lime bikes around here hmm all right, Daily Double number two is in the differs by a letter category. It is pick number 14 at the $1,200 level, and Elisa finds it. She's at 9400 Marty is at 600 and Hester is at 4600 And she wagers 3000 and gets the clue Vindictive Punishment for Past Wrongs and Income Generated by a Government or Person. And she tries to ring in, <laughs> which was really, really cute. Uh, <laughs> Until she remembered, oh yeah, I don't need to ring in, and she and then said, "What is revenue and revenge?" And daily double three is the twenty fifth pick. It's at the twelve hundred dollar level of Let's Talk Revolution, and Hester finds this one. She's at seventy four hundred to Elisa's thirteen thousand two hundred, and Marty's twenty six hundred. She wagers twenty six hundred. I guess she's trying to head for ten thousand even. Yeah. And she gets the clue. The full name of this 1966 to 76 upheaval commences with Great Proletarian. And she can't come up with anything. And just as the time's about to run out, she says, what is the Great Proletarian Workers' Revolution? And that's not correct. And Mayim calls time rather than ruling on the response. Um, They were looking for a cultural revolution. Yeah, the cultural revolution. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Elisa is in a lock position at 13,200 because Marty is at 2,200 and Hester is at 4,800. This was a rough game for kind of all of them, but mm-hmm. Elisa managed to uh, really hit that daily double at the right time and, and get her lead out there. Um, they get the f- final Jeopardy category, 20th century physics, and the clue, puzzlingly heavy and long-lived particles discovered in the 1940s were dubbed this adjective later applied to even smaller particles this took me back to my deep dive on elementary particles yes indeed it made me realize how much i've already forgotten about that um marty put what are quarks uh that is incorrect and she had wagered everything so she drops to zero hester put what are nanoparticles um, I guess nano could be a adjective, sort of, um, mm-hmm. but that was also incorrect. So she lost 1,200, and Elisa put what is subatomic, and that was also incorrect, so she drops down. Uh, they were looking for strange, strange particles, and then there mm-hmm. is a particular flavor of quark now that is strange. Elisa was in a locked position, and she didn't bet too much, so she is also a finalist.
Yeah. My guess here was subatomic, so so I'm with Elisa. I see now puzzlingly heavy, like puzzlingly, I think, sure. is the uh is the is the keyword yeah. here. Um I looked at it and didn't see atom or atomic anywhere and I was like, Oh, subatomic. That seems like that fits. Yeah. Yeah. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Deborah Steinberger, an associate professor of French literature from University of Delaware in Newark. Gary Hollis, a chemistry professor from Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. And Ed Hashima, a history professor from American River College in Sacramento, California. And we have the Jeopardy round categories playing professor, Southern California history, four-syllable words, a cut above, prequels and sequels and world menu that's that's world as in like mixed up yes world world menu ed got to pick first and surprise surprise he went for southern california history which i realize sacramento isn't quote-unquote southern california but mm-hmm. i mean the other two are from virginia and newark right yeah although they all did pretty well they they yeah. spread around as to who got these right yeah, yes, indeed. I have mixed feelings about referring to a book written in the same, you know, in the same universe about the same characters by a different author who has no connection to the original author as a prequel or sequel. Mm, such as Wide Sargasso Sea? Such as Wide Sargasso Sea, which is an important book. I haven't actually read it. To me, like when when a when a different author sort of steps in and like imagines something with the same characters, having not engaged like with the original author directly at all, I don't know. It just it just it seems like it should be a it should have a different name, right? To me, than I mean, than prequel or sequel, which seems to suggest you know sort of one cohesive creative vision, right? I I mean. I think we just call that like headcanon or fan right. fiction. Like yeah, fanfic. All right. right. Um, I mean, I think fanfic has some has some kind of connotations, but it, well, yeah. I mean, I guess eh, whatever. There are specific terms for the for some of those connotations. That's fair. That's fair. You're right. You're right. So, like, I mean, I I have when people are asking me for book recommendations, I often point them to books by Geraldine Brooks, who I love, and she won the Pulitzer Prize for March. Which is right. telling the story of the father of the girls in Little Women and like what's happening with him. Or, you know, it's like mm-hmm. her vision of that, right? But I don't call it like a like a sequel to Little Women. Little Women has sequels. Like right. I, I refer to it as Little Women fanfic, right? Like there's Little Women fanfic that won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, it's really good. It, you have to be really good. Yeah, it is still what it is, though. Yeah, but yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like a sequel to me. So, so similarly with Wide Sargasso Sea, but you know, maybe that's just my issue. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. Like, put it into into real words, but yeah. Similarly, there's been some like. Uh, I mean, I'm not especially invested in like the Gone with the Wind universe, but I hear people just sort of casually referring to the sequel to Gone with the Wind, and I'm like, well, like you, like mm. sort of, but like. Sort of not. Yeah. 
You know, if it's written by a different author after the original author has has died, and it's like completely like there's no there's no coordination among the parties. I just I don't I I have I don't feel like it counts as a sequel. We should call that something else. Anyway, I've said this like four times consecutively now. I clearly feel strongly about it, but I should drop it. Well, we won't necessarily drop it right away because Daily Double Number One. Oh right, yes, indeed, is in the prequels and sequels category at the eight hundred dollar level. Although this one is a little bit closer to home, like or a little bit more acceptable, probably. Gary finds it. It's at pick number 14. He's at 800. Ed is at 3,600. Deborah's at negative 400. And he makes it a true daily double, even though he could have bet 1,000. One thing to remember, Jeopardy folks, if you're getting on, if you have less than 1,000 or 2,000, a true daily double is not the biggest winning you can get. Mm-hmm. That just means you're doubling. Uh Anyway, he wagers 800, gets the clue co-authored by Brian Herbert. House Atreides is the first in a series of prequels to this series. And he gets that correct with what is Dune. So it is co-authored by the author's son. Acceptable prequel. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think so, too. I haven't read it. I've read the, I've read the Dune series, like the four yeah. main Dune books. Haven't read the other ones. Mm-hmm. I got kind of duned out because I read them all in order. And man, I tell you what, that fourth book, God Emperor of Dune, it is weird and like kind kind of hard to get through. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have not read any of the Dune books. Dune is great. The first one, I loved it. Okay. Couldn't put it down. Hmm. Second one was a little bit boring in my opinion. We can argue about it, you know, with people who want to argue about it. Children of Dune, the third book, again, very, very good. Uh, and then God Emperor of Dune just kind of goes off the deep end. Frank Herbert's like, wow, I made it four books into this. Let me see what I can get away with. <laughs> like, it, get, it gets weird. Looking on Wikipedia, the prelude to Dune novels draw from notes left behind by Frank Herbert before his death, oh. which to me is like that that mm-hmm. that makes a difference, right? Like, oh, yeah, it, is yeah. a, it is a cohesive creative vision. Absolutely, yes. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ed is at 6,000, Gary is at 1,400, and Deborah's at 1,000, and we get the double Jeopardy categories nuclear physics starts with w world cities music stars checks as in people from the czech republic and balances in that checks category uh the two thousand dollar level king sigismund of hungary promised this czech religious reformer safe passage then grabbed him and burned him ed gotta correct that's jan hus Last week, when I was doing my research for my revolutions quiz, uh, one of the things I looked into was the Hussite Rebellion mm-hmm. in Hungary. So that name, I was just reminded of that name in the last week, which otherwise I would not have known. I would not have remembered that name. That one comes up, although I don't remember a whole lot about Jan Hus, truth be told. It was nice seeing Ed just have that name just ready to go. Yeah. Oh, man. Ed had some very impressive knowledge Uh uh-huh also his like pop music knowledge was just awesome oh my gosh ed got taylor swift and dua lipa and And seal seal and the bangles oh my gosh yeah way to go ed man i wish yeah that's impressive yeah i mean i've already talked about how pop music is like my weakest thing which shouldn't be but you know everybody has to have a weakest thing but uh, Daily Double 2 is in the World Cities category at the $1,600 level, and Deborah finds it at the 11th pick. 
she's at 3,400, Ed's at 6,000, Gary's at 8,200, and she wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. The name of this second largest city in Wales starts with a big bird. She does not come up with anything. They're looking for Swansea. Swansea. Yeah, which I did not realize was in Wales. No. It was like city in Wales, and I was like, Cardiff. Cardiff. And it was like, it starts with a big bird. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not Emu. it. Emu. <laughs> Ostrich. Dodo. Yeah, right. I was, exactly. And it was a was big it bird. Dodo was Dodo big? I don't even know. <laughs> uh, Dodos, I think, were not that big. Probably, yeah. I think they were smaller than swans. But it's Swansea. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought Cardiff, and then I was like, nope, big bird. And then I started from, like, the biggest bird I could think of. I was mm-hmm. never going to get to Swansea. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, me neither. And Daily Devil number three is back in that checks category. It's at the $1,200 level. Ed finds it at pick number 18. He is up to 12400 over Gary's 7000 and Deborah's 1800 and he wagers just 1200 And gets a clue, in the 1890s, he moved briefly from Prague to New York City, inspiring his best-known symphony. And he gets that correct with Who is Dvorak? One of my all-time favorite pieces. New World Symphony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. New World Symphony. His symphony number nine, in case that ever becomes a, uh, a trivia thing. Huh. Okay. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Ed's in the lead with 15,600, Gary's at 10,200, Deborah's at 4,200, and we have the final Jeopardy category awards, and the clue, the Theodore Roosevelt Rough Rider Award honors influential people from this state, including Western author Louis L'Amour. This was a triple stumper as well. Deborah tried what is Texas. Uh, she did not wager anything, so she stays at 4,200. Gary tried what is New Mexico. That's not correct either. He wagered 8,000, so he drops down to 2,200. And Ed guessed what is Wyoming. He wagered 5,000. That brings him down to 10,600. So he is in the lead and, uh, and gets that finalist spot. North Dakota is what we were looking for mm-hmm. here. Uh, and you were supposed to think of kind of the connection between Roosevelt and North Dakota. Which I did not. Yes. No, me neither. Truth that was be a told. Pretty no. challenging one. No, that was uh, that was tricky. Yeah. So good for Ed, keeping his position and uh, moving on to the finals. So on Thursday, we have the first of the two-day total point affair, which up until this point, Mayim had not used that terminology. She had not used that terminology all week, and I was getting worried mm-hmm. that we would not hear that it was a two-day total point affair. But she let us know on this day that it is, in fact, a two-day total point affair, and I'm saying it mm-hmm. a lot to make up for all the missed times. Right. It's been a hard year. We need to lean on tradition and ritual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to get us through. <laughs> yes. So every one of us knows who he is mm-hmm. and what God expects him to do. Uh, so we have the finalist contestants, Elisa Hovey, a, a botany professor from Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina, Ed Hashima, a history professor from American River College in Sacramento, California, and Sam Buttry, an associate professor of operations research from Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And the Jeopardy round categories are geographic nicknames, fashion, the 15th century, classic movies, what do you know, and ends with a silent consonant. I love a good silent consonant. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
They missed the $600 level. There was a painting, uh, and the clue was the 17th century painting scene here depicts Anthony de Bord and his this, whose name is not given. In American English, we call that a valet, and it fits the category. And in British English, they call it a valet. valet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing none of them were British on the stage. Yes, indeed. I felt like we were, this week, kind of seeing Maya and Bialik try and figure out how much personal anecdote to throw in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We learned that she wanted the aerobics instructor Barbie. um, And then in the fashion category, she kept telling us which things did or did not look good on her. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like, I'm glad that you have the confidence to share that with us. That is a good thing to have. Yeah. She claims she does not look good in a paper bag waist. Nobody looks good in a paper bag waist. They are made to look bad. Now, hang on. I don't have a specific example, but that's a pretty broad statement that only needs one counter argument that's to be true. made false. You know what? Like, if you look good in a paper bag waist, congratulations. You're, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. My wife looks good in a paper bag waist. Ah. Because she looks good in everything. Because she's amazing and beautiful. There we go. You, the you, you know how to do marriage. Congrats. Nailed um, it. Yeah. Mayim does look good in a peplum she claims according to mayam yes she has people whose job it is to tell her what she does and doesn't look good in so she probably knows i would guess right I would th- yeah i guess yeah if like part of your whole career is to appear in front of people like yeah, yeah. that makes sense yeah still one of my favorite deep dives i've ever done was my joan of arc deep dive um mm-hmm. so i i recalled that at the 600 dollars level of the fifth 15th century, uh, where we had a clue about uh, someone who attended Charles VII's coronation at Rheim and then was burned at the stake two years later. Sam got that one. I also recalled that from your deep dive. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the geographic nicknames category at the $800 level, and Ed finds it at the fourth pick. Oh, this is weird. He has 600 He's tied with Sam. Elise is at zero. Ed wagers 800. He can wager anything up to 1,000, but he decides not to, he decides to wager exactly the value of the clue, mm-hmm. which is an interesting choice. He gets the clue. The French are known to refer to this peak as the white lady, and he gets it correct. That's Mont Blanc. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sam's in the lead with 7,200. Ed's at 4,600. Elisa's at 1,400. And we have the double jeopardy categories, literary museums, plants and animals and fungi. Oh, my. Snowpuri. They're just don't. messing just with don't. you now. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> Protest songs, mirror image words, and say your prayers. Now, with the plants and animals and fungi. Fungi? Fungi? The the botanist on stage pronounced it fungi and mm-hmm. seemed to go out of her way to go all the way through the title of the category to get to the pronunciation of fungi. Yeah. And I wondered if she was trying to make a statement that it should be pronounced this way or yeah, if that's just... If she was like, I, uh, I just want to say the whole category title. Yeah. I specifically noticed that because I always pronounce it fungi. And I'm like, am I doing it wrong? Mm-hmm. Is Are both acceptable? I don't know now. Yeah, I've always always pronounced it fungi. 
So have I. So have a lot of people. So uh, it yeah. makes the it makes the punchline of that one joke work. Yeah, I know. Which would be tragic if it's not the case anymore. Yeah. An entire joke is gone from my lexicon. Anyway, I'll I'll wallow in my misery over that later. This was a this was a great board for me personally. Good. You know, the save your prayers category was certainly my wheelhouse. Although not all Christian prayers. We had a clue about Shinto morning prayers and praying for the emperor. We had a like an ancient Greece clue uh, where we were trying to come up with Orpheus. And then nobody knew what you call the uh, crier who um, who calls, calls to Muslims to prayer five times a day. That's a muezzin. Am I saying that right? Muezzin. Muezzin. Yeah. yeah. I knew that because I teach my students about that. Uh, nice. When I get a chance to, when I get a chance to talk about world music and uh, things like that, you know, like when, when mm-hmm. we have a little bit of break in performance, I like to, I like to talk about different different music from different parts of the world that don't follow our you know classically inspired or directed systems. Yeah, because I think it's fascinating. I love talking about all the differences and similarities and stuff about all that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Daily double number two is in the mirror image words category sam did particularly well here in this category he had just talked at the break about how he like makes up word puzzles for people so this was like absolutely in his wheelhouse mm-hmm. uh, it's at pick number 15 at the 1600 level sam is at twelve thousand four hundred. ed is at 9800 and elisa is at 1000 and sam wagers 2400 and he gets the clue a type of frost and a Middle Eastern ruler. And he, as it came up, he nodded like this is something he has thought of before. I got this impression <laughs> right? that he's like, like that he's like, right oh, yeah, there for him. Yeah, like I, ex- I expected this to come up. And he immediately has what is rhyme and emir. Like I, my, my thought is like, he has to have thought of this particular pair before in his life. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, it floored me. <laughs> I was like, yeah. this is amazing. That was mind-boggling it was so good i i'm not bad at wordplay but like my brain was still on like okay shaw no and like he's already like gone and on yeah, to the next clue exactly yeah <laughs> and daily double number three is in the plants and animals and fungi i guess we'll say yeah, i don't know um, uh, I, oh, I just, nothing is true anymore Yep. Uh, Elisa finds this one at the $1,600 level. It's the 21st pick. She's at 2600 Sam's at 18400 Ed's at 10600 This is her moment. She makes it a true daily double. And she gets the clue to the Romans. Robigus was the god of this fungus. <laughs> fungus that appears as red, orange, or yellow spots on plants. And she responded, what is a rust? Uh, she, oh, first wait. she tried to buzz in again. This is the one that she tried to buzz in. I was wrong about the earlier one. Yeah. This is the one that I'm remembering she tried to buzz in uh-huh. on. Oops. Um, yeah. And then she responds, what is a rust? Which I had never, I mean, I've heard of rust, like the, you know, like iron oxide, but right. I had never heard of this particular fungus. But, you know, she's a professor of botany. So hopefully she has. has. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone has. Uh-huh. Yeah, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, that daily double helped Elisa, but the second half of 
Double Jeopardy was just Sam's game. So he is in a lead at 23,200. Ed is at 9,800 and Elisa is at 6,400. And they get the category World War II Geography and the clue Body of Water Battles included the Coral Sea, Philippine Sea, and this one that allowed Japan to seize Jakarta. Elisa wrote, what is the South China Sea? That is incorrect. That's a, you gotta move around Indochina to get up to there before you can really get to Indonesia. And she wagered 2,600. So she drops to 3,800. Ed wrote also, what is the South China Sea? Uh, he wagered 5,200. So he drops to 4,600. And Sam wrote, what is a Indonesian Sea? Which is, you know, a decent guess if you don't know the seas. Uh, but that is the Java Sea because Jakarta is on the island of Java. Mm -hmm. So Sam drops to 20,000, and these scores will carry over to tomorrow because it is a two-day total point affair. Mm -hmm. Ed is at 4,600, and uh, Elisa is at 3,800. Uh, and so on Friday, December 17th, we have these same three contestants again uh, for the second day of our finals. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the history of England, math, Professors, miscellany, at least they're not calling it potpourri this time. Yeah. Percussion instrument, movie taglines, and before and after. I Yay. love it before and after. Yeah. Again, Sam showed off his his prowess with wordplay mm -hmm. in that category. Ed got in first on one and then missed it. Um at the $400 level, protective glove used to handle hot items on the stove that was the 2012 Republican nominee for president. And Ed rang in and said, what is Mitt Romney? Which is like not incorrect. It's just to really make it a before and after. You got to have something else before. Yeah. People probably do sometimes call those those protective gloves just mitts, um, mm -hmm. but oven mitt is what they were looking for to really make it a before and after. So oven Mitt Romney is the correct response here, and Sam got it on yeah. the rebound. I liked the $800 level experimental James Joyce novel requested from the hotel front desk to rouse you from sleep in the morning. That's Finnegan's wake-up call. Yeah, Sam also yeah. enjoyed that. He yeah, yeah, he did. In the percussion instrument category, at the $200 level, the clue was, from Asia, it's a metal plate that is often more than six feet across. And uh, Sam got in and he said, what is a gong? And that that's a, a, correct. It's acceptable. I, I, I feel like you would have to do some research to actually verifiably claim that it is often more than six feet across. Or what does often mean? Yeah. Just to get pedantic, because we are, in fact, trivia people. Gongs are not the same as tam-tams, hmm. which are the big plates that you see gongs specifically usually have like a, a nodule on in the center where you strike it because gongs reverberate like at a certain pitch they are pitched whereas tam tams are non-pitched they resonate at too many pitches for the human ear to perceive just one fundamental mm. and so usually when we think of gongs like for the gong show you know, the big, like, crash sound. That's a tam-tam. That's not a gong. Oh. Um, gongs are more common in, like, Indonesian gamelan 
music, and they have specific pitches, which means you have different size gongs that resonate at different pitches. Mm-hmm. So when that clue came up, I was like, oh man, if I were on stage, I don't, I would have a hard time answering. And, you know, as we've often talked about, like, knowing too much about a thing will, yeah. will get in your way. And I'm like, oh man, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. I wonder if you'd said Tam Tam if they would have had to take it. I I would have. Right? From Asia, metal yeah. plate, often yeah, more a, than six feet across. Yeah, percussion, percussion instruments. Instrument. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be, I don't think it would be considered wrong. Yeah. And if they had said it was wrong, I would have argued with it. But mm-hmm. anyway, it's only $200. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the history of England. At the $600 level, it's pick number three. Ed found it. Uh, he was the only one to have gotten money. So he was at 600 And he did what he has done throughout the week. He bet the value of the clue, which also happened to be the amount of money that he had, uh, which is not the maximum amount you could have bet, but he bet 600 uh, And he got the clue one eye, one arm, but all man to Lady Hamilton. In 1799, this naval hero disobeyed an order to leave Naples and the lady. Uh, and he got it correct with who is Horatio Nelson. That's a name I know, but I'm not sure I would have gotten that one correct. Ah, Admiral Nelson. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sam is in the lead at 6,800, Ed is at 5,200, and Elisa is at 3,000. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Law, Poetic Objects, Home Sweet Home, Refugees, Celebrities, and Latin Mottos and Phrases. We had a a triple miss Regarding mm-hmm. the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock yes. at the $2,000 level of poetic objects. The clue there was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock contains the sad line, I have measured out my life with these utensils. I knew this one. You need to know Prufrock moderately well to get this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ed tried, what are teaspoons? That was incorrect. Elisa followed up with, what are tablespoons? That's also correct. Sam adamantly tried, what are spoons? spoons. What are spoons, Sam? (laughs) Yeah. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. You just, you would not guess it if you didn't know the poem, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, that's not like, one of the very best known lines no. from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. <laughs> no. Prufrock. Didn't we just have it on Jeopardy, the other line? Or it's some- we did. It was mentioned somewhere. Prufrock comes up a lot. Yeah. It's worth reading. It's not a long, long, it's like a two or three page poem, you mm-hmm. know? So like, if you're a trivia person, maybe sometime this week, like, take five minutes and read it. I think you could do it in, in five to ten. If you yeah. want to start, you know, delving into like analysis and like literary criticism about it, you could probably spend several years. But, you know, if you want to just have seen all the words so that maybe if you're asked about a famous line, it'll come back to you. That's a that's a five or ten minute project. Yeah. We also had I feel bad that I like keep zooming in on like the misses and the rebounds, you know, because like these contestants did a great job. But I feel like misses and rebounds often give us kind of an interesting insight into mm-hmm like people's processes. And uh, Elisa had a mix-up that I have struggled with in the celebrities category (laughs) at the $1,200 level. Uh, We had a picture of an actress, and then the clue was she's been nominated for three Oscars so far and one for The Help. And Elisa tried, who is Octavia Butler? 
That is not correct. That is Octavia Spencer. Octavia Butler is the sci-fi author um, of uh, Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents, Kindred, a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, Octavia Spencer is the actress. Mm-hmm. I was complaining about this and somebody gave me that I mixed them up uh, and somebody gave me the mnemonic Butler books, Spencer scripts, and now I've got it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Nice. Daily double number two is in the Latin mottos and phrases category at the $1,600 level and Sam finds it at the seventh pick. He's at 8,800 at this point. Ed's at 6,400. Elisa's at 2,600. And he wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. The motto of Johns Hopkins University, Veritas Vos Liberabit, translates to this familiar phrase. And he gets this one correct with, the truth will set you free. And daily double number three is in the poetic objects category at the $800 level. Just pick number 16 and Ed finds it. He's in a slight lead at 12,800 over Sam's 12,000. Elisa is in the red at negative 200. And he wagers 2,200. And he gets the clue. Tennyson's Idols of the King describes this with jewels on the hilt, bewildering heart and eye. It seems that Ed does not know what Idols of the King is about because he it, it doesn't come to him and he guesses what is a crown. Uh, but that is Excalibur, which if you listen to your Arthuriana deep dive, yes, you might know that. That would be helpful. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Elisa's dropped into the negative uh, and has actually dug herself a little bit further in uh, since we since we last heard. She's down to negative eighteen hundred. I think um, tried to tried to get out of the hole and uh, it didn't work out for her. Ed's in the lead with fifteen thousand four hundred. Sam's at thirteen thousand six hundred, and we have the final Jeopardy category: French artists. And the clue, the catalog of MoMA's first exhibition called This Artist Who Died in 1891, A Man of Science and Inventor of a Method. Sam wrote, who is Surat? He's wagered 2,000. That brings him up to 15,600 for this game. Ed uh, responded, who is Claude Monet? Uh, or he was he was heading for Monet, but he didn't get the T written. If the correct response had been Claude Monet, I think they would have taken it. Uh, he's wagered 13,700, um, which drops him down to 1,700 for this game. Um, it puts their cumulative scores at 35,600 for Sam, 6,300 for Ed. Elisa comes in at 3,800. And that makes Sam our tournament winner and gives him a spot in the Tournament of Champions. Ed gets the first runner-up prize with fifty thousand, and Elisa will take home twenty-five thousand. Yeah, yeah. That, that tournament of champions is filling up awfully quick. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're getting a new one every week or two. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. So, but I'm excited to see Sam back. Oh yeah, it's, it'll be good, man. Ah, oh, the whole time. I know a lot of people were talking like he reminds them of Steve Martin, which I got. I got. I got a Steve Martin vibe for sure. But I just kept thinking of Scott Bakula. I yeah, couldn't couldn't not think of Scott Bakula. That was a good tournament. I I really enjoyed that. It was yeah, a, it was a good one. A nice change of pace. And I know that when they when they first made the decision to hire Mike Richards and Mayim Bialik, like the idea was that Mayim would do tournaments and prime time stuff, right? Like extra stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if I mean this must have been part of the plan 
already. Uh, and I wonder what other what other things they have in store. Yeah. With that with that thought in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that part of my initial skepticism about the professors tournament was this whole like Mike Richards era, like Mayim Bialik, we're gonna do a bunch of special events thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think had me a little bit dubious, um, but it's been good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what I'm curious what else we'll see. Yeah, I'm still hoping for that ultimate teachers tournament. Yeah, you know, there they, we go. They bring all of us back. Well, I guess you know since we've talked about that second chance, you know everyone wants that second chance tournament. You know maybe that'll happen because now you have two hosts, so you can do. More. Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's do. It. I, I I would like a spot in a second chance tournament. Yes. everyone wants a spot in the second chance <laughs> tournament. Who am I kidding? Yeah, let's keep that hope alive. Yeah. So that's the end of the week and the end of the tournament. Um, and this is the point in the show where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It is Patreon.com/slash/PotentPotables. You can go there to support us financially with a monthly donation from just a few bucks on up. And uh, we have some patron-exclusive content on there. One of the things that we have been doing more regularly lately is we put the uh, quiz questions up right after we record. So uh, patrons get a chance to kind of preview that uh, before the episode drops. We have some other other content on there, too, uh, as well that you might be interested in. So you can check that out uh, if you feel the desire to do that. We are attempting to use that money to uh, hire a uh, an audio editor, and uh, we still need some funds for that. So that's, that's why we're asking. Uh, however, if supporting this particular podcast is not something that you can do or feel like you should do, uh, we do encourage you to still uh, direct your money and attention toward Movements that matter, like BlackLivesMatter.com, uh, CommunityJusticeExchange.org, and the Stop Asian and Pacific Islander Hate uh, GoFundMe. Yes, and thank you, Kyle. Do you have deep dive guesses? I do, and they are guesses because I am not you. Mm. Uh, there were a <laughs> lot of good options this week, so there were. I've got it. I, it was very hard to narrow it down. Uh, are you talking about the Cultural Revolution? I'm not. Okay. Are you talking about Zapata? I am not. Are you talking about the Huxleys? I'm not talking about the Huxleys. So I was inspired by the Literary Museums category at the $1,600 level. Uh, the clue was the Amazing World of Dr. Seuss Museum is in this Massachusetts city, Dr. Seuss's hometown. Uh, Ed tried what is Lowell, um, but Springfield is where Dr. Seuss is from. And I thought, hey, Dr. Seuss, let's let's uh, let's talk about Dr. Seuss. That's kind of it's kind of wheelhousey for me. I do a lot of children's literature children's literature um it may be a stretch to call him a poet uh but he certainly writes in verse yeah and you know so sorry for my millionth literary deep dive of the year but hey there's a lot gotta do what you're good at so theodore seuss geisel was born and raised in springfield massachusetts uh he was born march 2nd 1904 he was the son of Henrietta uh, Geisel Seuss or Zoice. Uh, I guess we'll get to that in a minute. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, and. 
Theodore Robert Geisel. Uh, his father managed the family brewery and was later appointed to supervise Springfield's public park system after the brewery closed because of prohibition. Uh, there was a Mulberry Street in Springfield, which uh, Dr. Seuss made famous in his first children's book, And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, uh, near his boyhood home on Fairfield Street. The family was of German descent, and uh, Geisel and his sister Marnie experienced some anti-German prejudice from other children um, following the outbreak of World War I. As he grew into adulthood, he attended Dartmouth College. He graduated in 1925. Dartmouth, he was a member of, of the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity and the humor magazine Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern, uh, where he eventually rose to the rank of editor-in-chief. Uh, while he was at Dartmouth, he was caught drinking gin with nine friends in the <gasps> room. No. This was during Prohibition. So uh, the c- possession and consumption of alcohol was illegal at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, as a result of this infraction, Geisel was required to resign from all extracurricular activities, including the Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern. And so to continue working on the magazine without the administration's knowledge, he adopted a pen name and began signing his work as Seuss or or Zeus, as the case may be. So let's get to that for a minute. So we tend to call him Dr. Seuss. The name, as I mentioned, is is from his family. It's his mother's maiden name. And the standard German pronunciation would be something like Zeus. He himself pronounced it initially, at least, as Seuss. Uh, we've we've actually heard that in a Jeopardy clue quite a while back. Mm-hmm. A, a Dartmouth colleague wrote a little rhyme about how he pronounced it. But as he came to be well known under that pen name, people started pronouncing it Seuss, and he eventually accepted and switched to that anglicized pronunciation, uh, saying that it, it evoked a figure advantageous for an author of children's books to be associated with, Mother Goose. Hmm. And he added the doctor to his pen name because his father had always wanted him to practice medicine. <laughs> That's all it takes. It's just... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, After graduating from Dartmouth, he uh, went to England, entering Lincoln College in Oxford, uh, where he intended to earn a PhD in English literature. While he was at Oxford, he met his future wife, Helen Palmer, who encouraged him to give up becoming an English teacher in favor of pursuing drawing as a career. She saw his work and thought this is what he should be doing with his life. Um, So he left Oxford without earning a degree and returned to the U.S. in February 1927, where he immediately began submitting writing and drawings to magazines, book publishers, and advertising agencies. His first nationally published cartoon appeared in the July 16, 1927 issue of the Saturday Evening Post. He was paid $25 for it, uh, and this heartened him and encouraged him to move from Springfield to New York City. Uh, Later that year, he accepted a job as writer and illustrator at the humor magazine Judge um, and proposed to Palmer and the two married. His first work that was signed Dr. Seuss, so the the time when he uh, added doctor, uh, was published um, about six months after he started working there. In early 1928, one of his cartoons for Judge Magazine mentioned Flit, which was a common bug spray at the time, manufactured by Standard Oil of New Jersey. And uh, according to Geisel, the wife of an advertising executive in charge of advertising Flit saw the cartoon at a hairdresser's and urged her husband to sign him. His first Flit ad appeared in May May of 1928, 
and the campaign continued sporadically until 1941. The campaign's catchphrase, Quick Henry the Flit, became a part of popular culture, and he gained notoriety for the Flit campaign, and his work uh, was increasingly in demand uh, and began to appear regularly in magazines such as Life, Liberty, and Vanity Fair. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I feel like that 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 leading me somewhere. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, it's good. He got more advertising work coming out of his success with the Flit campaign, including for Esso uh, Marine Boat Fuel, Esso Lube Motor Oil, uh, for Ford, Mo- Ford Motor Company, NBC Radio Network, and Holly Sugar. Um, and at that point, he uh, published his first book uh, titled boners um uh which is <laughs> i <laughs> i told you you were going to enjoy this deep dive <laughs> um yes uh so it was a a collection of humorous apparently children's sayings that he illustrated which topped the new york times nonfiction bestseller list uh, led to a sequel, More Boners, published in the same year. Um, oh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the book was a was a bestseller, um, and uh, critical reception was positive, which, which is mind-boggling. <laughs> he wrote and illustrated an ABC book featuring very strange animals, but publishers were not interested in that at the time. In 1936, uh, he and his wife were returning from an ocean voyage to Europe. Uh, they, they'd... Uh, his success had enabled them to, you know, kind of be travelers and like society people a little bit more. So they were returning from an ocean voyage to Europe when the rhythm of the ship's engines inspired the poem that became his first children's book and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. Hmm. He claims that it was rejected by numerous publishers. He has offered numbers anywhere from 20 to 43. And According to his story, he was walking home discouraged to burn the manuscript when he happened to run into an old Dartmouth classmate, um, and their encounter led to its publication by Vanguard Press. He wrote four more books before the U.S. entered World War II, all prose, The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, The King's Stilts, and uh, an adult book called The Seven Lady Godivas. And then in 1940, he published Horton Hatches the Egg. Uh, where he returned to using verse. And then World War II began, at which point he turned to uh, political cartooning. Uh, he drew over 402 years as an editorial cartoonist for the New York City daily newspaper PM. His political cartoons were later published in a volume titled Dr. Seuss Goes to War. Um, he was super anti-Hitler, Highly critical of non-interventionists or isolationists, um, mm-hmm. most notably Charles Lindbergh. Ah, uh, yes. However, you know, it's not all like, yay, Dr. Seuss. He was supportive of Japanese internment. Um, there was one cartoon depicting Japanese Americans being handed TNT, like sort of lined up all all in a row in anticipation of a signal from home. His cartoons were strongly supportive of President Roosevelt's handling of the war and critical of everyone he perceived as um, opposing uh, or obstructing President Roosevelt's strategy. In 1942, 
he uh, shifted to more direct support of the U.S. war effort. Uh, he worked drawing posters for the Treasury Department and the War Production Board. And then in 1943, he joined the Army as a captain and was commander of the Animation Department of the first motion picture unit of the U.S. Army Air Forces, where he wrote films that included Your Job in Germany, Our Job in Japan, and the Private Snafu series of adult Army training films. Um <laughs> Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he was awarded the Legion of Merit for his for his work. Okay. Uh after the war, he and his wife moved to the La Jolla community of San Diego, California, where he returned to writing children's books. Um he published most of his books through Random House in North America and William Collins, later HarperCollins, internationally. Uh his first after the war was uh that great favorite, McElligot's Pool. Everyone loves that one. Just kidding. Nobody knows that one. Um, and he ultimately published 50-ish, I think a little over 50 children bo children's books under the name Dr. Seuss during his life, including, um, I'm not going to like cover each of these individually. Um, uh, 1954, Horton Hears a Who. 1957, The Cat in the Hat. Also 1957, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, 1958, The Cat in the Hat Comes Back. Uh, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish in 1960. Green Eggs and Ham, also 1960. The Sneetches and Other Stories was in 1961. Hop on Pop in 1963. Fox and Socks in 1965. The Lorax in 1971. The Butter Battle Book in 1981. I Am Not Going to Get Up Today in 1987. And Oh, The Places You'll Go in 1990. Which I think of as like, I mean, I, I, I realize that 1990 was 31 years ago now. But I had not realized that it was kind of so late in his career. Mm -hmm. In May 1954, Life published a report on illiteracy among school children, which concluded that children were not learning to read because their books were boring. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Got to think that's kind of a swing and a miss there on those findings. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the director of the education division, division at Houghton Mifflin, uh, William Ellsworth Spaulding, compiled a list of 348 words that he felt were important for first graders to recognize. And he asked Geisel to cut the list to 250 words and write a book using only those 250 words and challenged him to bring back a book children can't put down. Uh, so nine months later, Dr. Seuss was back with the cat in the hat using 236 of the words from the list he'd been given. It retained his characteristic drawing style verse rhythms and kind of, you know, imaginative, you know, creative, like kind of madcap vision, but simplified his previously very kind of out there vocabulary, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, a lot of those, a lot of those Dr. Seuss books that, that you think of are um, full of kind of made up words. Yeah. Um, so this one was designed to be read by beginning readers. Um, and so his, he has kind of these two styles and he wrote in both of them. He wrote these simplified vocabulary books, which were sold as beginner books. Um, so, you know, the cat in the hat, green eggs and ham, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And he wrote kind of the more elaborate style with the, with the made up words, um, you know, the Grinch, the mm -hmm. Lorax, those kinds of things. He wrote most of his books in anapestic tetrameter, which oh, is a, yes, classic. Yes. So an anapest is uh, two 
unstressed syllables and a stressed syllable tetrameter is four of those so the news just came in from the county of keck that a very small bug by the name of van fleck is yawning so wide you can look down his neck that's anapestic tetrameter and there's a lot of anapestic tetrameter um in the english literary canon it's been suggested that that was you know kind of part of what resonated in his writing Mm -hmm. he used some other meters as well it's not it's not all that one He made a point of not beginning to write his stories with a moral in mind. He said kids can see a moral coming a mile off, um, but he wasn't against writing about issues. He said there's an inherent moral in any story, and he claimed that he was subversive as hell. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, he's a complicated figure. Yeah. So uh, some of his books that are kind of more explicitly connected to various social and political issues, The Lorax, of course, um, mm-hmm. is about environmentalism and anti-consumerism. Uh, the Sneetches has, um, you know, an obvious racial equality analogy. The Butter Battle book, I don't know well, but is apparently about the arms race. Uh, mm-hmm. Yertle the Turtle has an anti-authoritarianism message, how the Grinch stole Christmas criticizes materialism and consumerism, especially, you know, relating to uh, the Christmas season. Horton Hears a Who is about anti-isolationism and internationalism. Really? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Yeah. So um, it's been, it's been framed. I mean, we, we know that he uh, supported Japanese American internment during world war two. It's been framed as kind of a book that reflects something of a change of heart for him um, as an allegory for the American post-war occupation of Japan. The book is dedicated to a Japanese friend of his, um, although one critic notes um, that even Horton Hears a Who has a sense of American chauvinism. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I know Horton Hears a Who well enough to like give you an authoritative, you know... Yeah, it's point an interesting view uh, on that. I'll, I'll think about that next time I read it with my kids. Yeah. For books that Geisel wrote and someone else illustrated, he used the pen name Theo Lesig, mm-hmm. starting with I Wish That I Had Duck Feet, which was published in 1965. Lesig is Geisel spelled backward, uh, and Theo, of course, is uh, a shortening of his first name. He also published one book under the name Rosetta Stone. The title was Because a Little Bug Went Kachoo, published in 1975 uh, in collaboration with Michael K. Frith. That pen name was chosen in honor of his second wife, Audrey, whose maiden name was Stone. Hmm. Uh, I haven't gotten to her yet. He received numerous awards throughout his career. Um, he never did win the Caldecott Medal, which is the you know most famous one for um, for children's illustration or the Newbery Medal, which is the most famous for like an outstanding children's book, but numerous other awards. In 1955, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of humane letters by Dartmouth. Um, and he joked that he would have to uh, start signing things, Dr. Dr. Seuss. He received the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal from the Professional Children's Librarians in 1980, um, recognizing his substantial and lasting contributions to children's literature. And a special Pulitzer Prize in 1984, citing his contribution over nearly half a century to the education and enjoyment of America's children and their parents. His wife, Helen, had a long struggle with illnesses uh, and died by suicide in October of 1967. In 1968, he married his second wife, Audrey Diamond. He had no children of his own in either marriage and seemed, you know, sort of happily so. 
oh, uh, this sort of fits in with the uh, the Dr. Seuss's like political and social viewpoints, sort of, um, but I wasn't quite sure where to put it. Um, but the line, a person's a person, no matter how small, from Horton Hears a Who, has been used widely as a slogan by the pro-life movement in the United States. Um, but Geisel and later after his death, Audrey objected to this use. According to uh, her attorney, uh, she doesn't like people to hijack Dr. Seuss characters or material to front their own points of view. Um, in the 1980s, Geisel threatened to sue an anti-abortion group for using this phrase on their stationery, according nice. to his biographer, and uh, caused them to remove it. He died of cancer on September 24th, 1991, at his home in La Jolla. Um, he was 87 at the time. And his widow, Audrey, oversaw his estate until her death on December 19 of 2018, when she was 97. In the years after his death, in 1991, two additional books were published based on his sketches and notes. Um, Hooray for Diffin Doofer Day was one, and Daisy Head Maisie was the other. In 2002, the Dr. Seuss National Memorial Sculpture Garden opened in Springfield, Massachusetts, featuring sculptures of Geisel and many of his characters. And in 2017, the Amazing World of Dr. Seuss Museum, the one from The Clue, opened next to the Dr. Seuss National Memorial Sculpture Garden. In 2004, an award was established by U.S. children's librarians in his honor to recognize the most distinguished American book for beginning readers published in English in the U.S. during the preceding year. This award goes to a book that's geared toward pre-K to second grade readers and demonstrates creativity and imagination. Um, he's been on the Forbes list of the world's highest paid dead celebrities every year since the list started being published in 2001. The organization that owns the rights to his books and related properties, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, announced on March 2, 2021, so this year, uh, that it will stop publishing and licensing six books. You probably heard this news story. Mm -hmm. The titles in question are, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, which you've probably heard of, um, you know, even before this deep dive. If I ran the zoo, which you might have heard of, but, you know, maybe not. McElligot's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Eggs Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. So those six, according to the organization, portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong and are no longer being published due to racist and insensitive imagery. This caused a whole hullabaloo. I think it's it's worth noting that these were not especially popular titles and that books that are selling a very low number of copies go out of print all, all the, the time. time. All the time. And especially... If the author is beloved and they have something very obscure that nobody really reads anymore that also has some, you know, really gross and insensitive racial stereotypes, like, it is not only the right thing to do, but like, arguably, like, you know, good business sense yeah. to just, just stop printing that one. Right. Yeah. Um, for most of his career, Geisel was reluctant to have his characters marketed in contexts outside of his own books, um, but he did permit the creation of several animated cartoons. You know, he had experience with that art form from his work during World War II, um, and he gradually relaxed his policy as he aged. 
The first adaptation was a cartoon version of Horton Hatches the Egg, which was animated at Warner Brothers in 1942. Uh, in 1966, he authorized eminent cartoon artist Chuck Jones, uh, his friend and former colleague from the war, to make a cartoon version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Geisel was credited as a co-producer under his real name, Ted Geisel, along with Jones. Uh, the cartoon was narrated, narrated by Boris Karloff, who also provided the voice of the Grinch. Jones also directed an adaptation of Horton Hears a Who in 1970 and produced an adaptation of The Cat in the Hat in 1971. Um, after Geisel died of cancer, his widow, Audrey, took charge of licensing matters uh, until her death. And since then, licensing has been controlled by Dr. Seuss Enterprises. Audrey approved a live action feature film version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, starring Jim Carrey, as well as the Broadway musical Seussical, both premiered in 2000. In 2003, another live action film was released, um, an adaptation of The Cat in the Hat that featured Mike Myers. Audrey Geisel was very critical of that film, especially the casting of Mike Myers as The Cat in the Hat, and stated that she would not allow any further live action adaptations of Geisel's books. However, a, a, a CGI feature film adaptation of Horton Hears a Who was approved um, and was eventually released in March of 2008. A CGI version of The Lorax was released in 2012 on what would have been Dr. Seuss's 108th birthday. And the third adaptation of The Grinch, a CGI feature film, was released by Universal in November of 2018. There have also been five television series adapted from his work. Uh, Gerald McBoing Boing <laughs> ran from 1956 to 57. Uh, the Wubulous World of Dr. Seuss was a collaboration with Jim Henson Productions mm. uh, running from 1996 to 1998. Uh, there was a remake of Gerald McBoing Boing, believe it or not, uh, in well, Canada from 2005 to Gerald 2007. Right? There have been five Dr. Seuss shows, and two of them are of the same thing you've never heard of. Uh, the Cat in the Hat knows a lot about that. The theme song of that one haunts my dreams. <laughs> um, <laughs> it ran from 2010 to, I think, 2018, but it's not totally clear to me whether that is completely over or what and the internet didn't especially care to tell me i'm sure maybe if i dug more i could find out um and then the fifth green eggs and ham is an animated streaming television adaptation of you know green eggs and ham premiered on netflix in november of 2019 and a second season is premiering or did premiere this year let's see okay it released last month but my dr seuss's adaptations list was not fully updated yeah so uh Second season of Green Eggs and Ham is uh, is new on Netflix. Oh, good, because they left it on such a cliffhanger. I know. <laughs> Will he eat the green eggs and ha green eggs and ham? Won't he? There's also a theme park uh, attraction, um, Seuss Landing, at the Islands of Adventure theme park in Orlando, Florida, and that's pretty much it for Doctor Seuss. Um, he he's a a uh, prolific and significant guy with problematic elements which i don't mean to minimize yeah. yeah but that's uh that's him okay yeah nice um so are you ready for a quiz you know it mm -hmm. this one has a bit of a mystery theme okay so question one barrel mountain ball Fendler's Hedgehog 
and common fishhook are varieties of what organism? Uh, I don't know, but... Okay. Barrel? Mountain ball. Mountain ball. Fendler's hedgehog. Fendler's hedgehog. And common fishhook. Common fishhook. I can see where Fendler's hedgehog is leading you astray, and I'll just I'll just note that that is leading you astray. I think. Oh man, I don't. I okay. I don't. I don't know this obviously, and there are two things, two two options in my mind. Since this is a Dr. Seuss one, I'm gonna go with the one that has a Dr. Seuss connection, and I'm gonna go with turtles. Ooh, I see what you're doing there, but that is incorrect. These are varieties of cactus. Oh, wait a minute. Did you just say they, these are varieties of what? I, I said organism. Is organism. organism. Is organism My, not... No, 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 that's correct. My brain just said animal mm-hmm. when it heard organism. So that makes total sense. Yeah, I know a barrel cactus. Yeah. I, yeah. I tried to, like, I didn't want to be like, saguaro. Or... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. No, no. Uh, that was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, apologies for the mislead. I was worried that Fendler's okay. hedgehog was pointing you toward an animal instead of a plant. No, just the whole, my brain was pointing me toward an animal. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to, we're going to get it back. All right. Question two. These items, a staple of vaudeville and slapstick comedy, were found by researcher Kiyoshi Mabuchi to have a coefficient of friction of 0.07, an unsurprising finding, which was nevertheless awarded an Ig Nobel Prize in Physics in 2014. What are these infamously slippery things? Are they banana peels? They are banana okay. peels. <laughs> good. Glad I'm glad someone did the science. That's yeah. what science is for. Um, apparently... Banana peels being slippery was like kind of an an existing joke as far back as like the 1850s, but it was a little bit after that that like large scale importation of bananas started. Hmm. Um, at which point they became like an actual hazard, and there was like stuff in Sunday school curricula about not dropping your banana peels on the sidewalk. So yeah, no, uh, like banana peels, like as street litter was like apparently like a real social problem for a period of time, as well wow. as a, a funny joke. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you're at 10 points. Uh, question three, an annual festival held in Gilroy, California celebrates what allium? The pungent ingredient is featured in traditional preparations like scampi and bread and more unusual recipes such as ice cream. I mean, it's got to be garlic. It is garlic. I'm just yeah. realizing that I have like three plant clues right in a row, um, but that's okay. Yeah, the Gilroy Garlic Festival um, also includes a golf tournament and like a pageant type competition. Hmm. Yeah. So you're at 20 points. And question four. The song Never Smile at a Crocodile was written for what 1953 Disney film? The song ver- the sung version was eliminated from the film, which ended up using only the instrumental version as a leitmotif. Never smile at a crocodile. What was the year? 19- 1953. 53. Jeez, that's very early. 
It wouldn't be that. Uh, I don't know this fact, so I'm going to say The Jungle Book. Oh, that's a good guess. Um, It's Peter Pan, actually. Oh, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, there's the, the crocodile is like, you know, Captain Hook's enemy. And uh, Peter Pan was kind of in process and then stopped because of World War II. Um, and in the intervening many years, the composer of the song died by suicide. And I guess that that may have contributed to not including the song in the final version of the film, but it was included like on the soundtrack um, mm. and covered numerous times. And people sort of associate it with Peter Pan because, you know, because the instrumental version is there. So yeah, written for Peter Pan, but not actually sung in Peter Pan and gained popularity sort of thereafter. Interesting. Yeah. All right. You're at 20 points. And question five. On December 17th, Jorge Navarro was sentenced to five years in prison and fined $25.8 million as part of a scandal in what sport? Other names mixed up in this particular scandal include Jason Service, Randall Gindy, and Maximum Security. That's such a name. Mm-hmm. There's been a cactus. There's been garlic. Peter Pan. The theme is banana peel. Incorporated into the question or the answer from oh, from from all of these. I'm sorry. I I yeah. I know uh, it would be better if it was always the answer. I mean, with names like that, uh, I'm gonna have to say wrestling. Ooh, that is such a good guess. Ah, it's horse racing. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maximum security is the horse the in horse. question. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I figured is... it wasn't a person that went after you said horse racing. Yeah, okay. I, I figured out my theme, and I was like, you know what would be really great would be if there was like a notable scandal in horse racing, but and... I haven't heard of anything. <laughs> Lo and and I Googled it. And there is the horse racing world is exploding right now with like a horse doping scandal. Interesting. This is not even the um, the most recent, like the most recent winner of the Kentucky Derby, Medina Spirit, the twenty twenty one Kentucky Derby winner, failed a drug test right after the Kentucky Derby and then died two weeks ago, presumably of or you know possibly of doping related thing uh died of a heart attack but this is this is a separate scandal that has you know sort of worked its way through the court system and is you know like in sentencing now and this this jorge navarro guy apparently in a in a search of his home related to this they found that he had gotten some custom shoes emblazoned with the word hashtag juice man in all caps oh my god <laughs> oh that's perfect yeah um all right so i made this quiz way harder than i meant to you are at 20 points and uh we're gonna call our last clue mystery theme i mean i'll bet it all because like whatever (laughs) yeah all right um in a well-known and relevant song a cactus a banana peel garlic A seasick crocodile and a crooked jerky jockey are all used as comparisons, analogies, or metaphors for what character? Well, that would be the Grinch. That That is is... the Grinch. Okay. 
Ah, that was very good. Thank you. That was very good. It's seasonally good. appropriate, too. It is seasonally appropriate, yes. And Maybe I should have told you the theme at the beginning. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I mean, I just sang that song today in the car mm-hmm. with the kids. Wow. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's very good. Yeah. I was like, I need a crooked jerky jockey. Oh, hey, look. Hey, look, I mean, there is not one. Actually a, he's not a jockey. He's a horse trainer, but, but close enough. I mean, if if the horses were juiced, they could be the crooked hoss. So. Yep. There we go. Yeah. All right. Well, you finish with 40 points, despite me making this a little bit more obscure than I meant to. That's all right. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were too obscure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah. And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. Um, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our show. That's right. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. We are taking the next couple of weeks off. We normally record over the weekend, and these these weekends are going to be Christmas and New Year's. So we'll be back with you after that to keep talking about Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. (laughs) 